scriptures. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And we see in that golden text that faith is that summation of the response that we're to give. It's a condition of accepting that gift of eternal life that Jesus makes possible through his atoning death on the cross for us. So without faith, we can't be saved. We can't live eternally through, through Jesus. The gospel of John is called the gospel of belief because faith is emphasized throughout this book. In fact, the Greek, Greek verb form or the word that was translated believe is used some 98 times in this gospel account. We've seen one in John 3.16 where it says uh, that that's our response to what God has done, uh, the gift of his son, and we believe in him, we'll have everlasting life. Notice also John 1 verse 12. Jesus says, as many as received him, or John says, inspired, as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name. Believing in him is what gives us the right, gives us access to become children of God. It is so important that Jesus said this concerning faith. Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins. If you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So over and over we see in scripture the necessity of faith. But think with me, secondly, about the nature of faith. Because this is disputed in the religious world. But I want us to look at what the Bible teaches about the nature of Bible, God-pleasing, saving faith. And what we find, there are three components I want to highlight. Number one, as Hebrews eleven six stated, faith involves a conviction grounded in evidence. A conviction grounded in evidence. Faith is going to mean we're convicted about some things. We're going to be convicted about some things that we believe are true. And these convictions do not ask us to make a blind leap of faith. That You often hear that phrase, don't you? But this is faith that is a conviction grounded in evidence. For example, back to Hebrews eleven six. Without faith, it's impossible to, to please God, for he who comes to God, number one, must believe that he is. That's where faith begins, if you will, believing in the existence of God. I like some questions that Eric Lyons and Kyle Butt ask in an article about seven reasons to believe in God. Here are the questions. How can you know that God exists? You can't see, hear, touch, smell, or taste him. You can't weigh him like you, like you can a five-pound bag of potatoes. You can't put him under an electron microscope to show your friends what he looks like on an atomic level. You can't experiment on him with probes and scalpels. You can't take a picture of him to show your neighbor that he's not just an imaginary friend. You can't magically make him appear in the classroom of an atheistic professor who, who is challenging anyone to prove that God exists. So how can you know that God exists? How can you know? He can't be perceived by, directly by the five senses, so how can you know that God exists? We 
folks, a component of faith, Bible, God-pleasing faith, it is a conviction grounded on, grounded in evidence. Let me remind you of some of the basic evidences of the existence of God. Number one, matter demands a maker. Matter demands a maker. Our universe exists. Any thinking individual will recognize that. But then, then the question becomes, well, then how did it come to exist? And even scientific laws will, will demonstrate to us that matter is not eternal. So that, then where did it come from? And even if, if you listen to folks say that it all began with the Big Bang, what produced that Big Bang? And what are the particles in that Big Bang? And, and on and on you can go. In short, matter demands a maker. The law of cause and effect says that every physical effect must have an adequate antecedent or simultaneous cause. And what makes the most sense is that matter came into being by someone who created it. Romans 1 verse 20 affirms, Since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly understood by what has been made so that men are without excuse. Matter demands a maker. Life demands a life giver. There's a scientific law, the law of biogenesis, that says in nature, life comes only from previous life of its own kind. But where did life originate? There are only two possibilities. And this comes from an uh, admitted evolutionist, Harvard University professor by the name of George, George Wald. He said there's really only two options. Number one, spontaneous generation. Spontaneous, instant. Just, just uh, I can't say miraculously because scientists deny that. But just spontaneous generation of life, it just appeared one day. Or the only alternative, he says, is to believe in a single primary act of supernatural creation. There is no third position. Well, which makes more sense to you? Life only comes from life. The law of biogenesis says that. Life cannot come from non-living chemicals. It only makes sense that life came from a life giver. Number three, design demands a designer. I, I've told you before, I used to be one that liked to figure out how things work. I gave up on this device. I, most of the time, I can't figure out how to make it work, much less understand how it works. But we understand that something like this didn't just accidentally come about. There's so much design and there's so much, I don't know about how to operate, but there are people more intelligent and younger than I that, that do. But design, we know this just, things like this just don't happen. They're designed, they're created. Folks, the way the universe works makes this look like a kid's toy. There's so much design in the world today. One of my favorite examples is, is thinking about the orbit of the earth and how I've, I've read that this elliptical orbit around the sun that the earth travels, it, it uh, w let's see, how is it stated? As the earth makes its way along its charted orbital route, the course is slightly altered one-ninth of an inch every 18 miles. One-ninth of an inch 
every 18 miles. And if we, were, if we had the, the ability to change that to one-eighth of an inch, we would swing so close to the sun that we would burn up. Or if we could make it one-tenth of an inch every 18 miles, we'd get too far away from the sun so that we would freeze. So it's just along just the right path for us to enable to, to live on this earth. And you want to tell me that that happened by accident? That kind of design? Amen. I got to know from my granddaughter. No, it didn't happen by accident. That is design, and design demands a designer. Morality, folks, demands a moral lawgiver. Why is it that most everyone believes? I even heard an agnostic in a debate recently affirm that there, is, there are objective uh, moral truths. Well, where does that come from? From non-living things? I think it makes perfect sense that the, pres the, the presence of morality and the ability that we have to make moral judgments indicates a moral creator. As Ross prayed, God, you are good, and we can learn about what is good from you. That's right on. That's the only way we can know what good is. Antony Flew was, a, was an atheist, and he changed his mind. And this is a statement attributed to him. I must say again that the journey to my discovery of the divine has thus far been a pilgrimage of reason. I have followed the argument where it has led me, and it has led me to accept the existence of a self-existent, immutable, immaterial, omnipotent, and omniscient being. And that, folks, is what the Bible calls God. Our faith, folks, is a conviction grounded in evidence. God's fingerprints are everywhere. And they shout of the existence of God. What about Jesus being the Son of God and the Savior of the world? That, and we must have faith in that in order to be saved from our sins. That is also grounded in evidence. And I'm going to have to hurry through this. Here are some of the evidences for the deity of Jesus. Number one, the fulfillment of Old Testament messianic promises. And if you'll think about these promises giving hundreds of years before Jesus was even born into this world, minute details about the place where he is born and, and how, what he would do on the cross, Isaiah 53, and over and over and over, being born of a virgin. Some have counted over 300 prophecies concerning Jesus. And the odds of those being accidentally fulfilled by a person are astronomical but Jesus fulfilled each and every one of them hundreds of years spoken hundreds of years before he even came to this earth number two he performed miracles and the miracles that Jesus performed that uh, gave evidence of his deity were were instantaneous they were complete and they were undeniable unlike what we hear are reported as miracles even today. Where limbs that had been missing were restored. Where people who had been lame from birth were enabled to, to walk, 
to be restored fully to, as the song goes, walking and leaping and praising God. The miracles of Jesus. John in prison. John the Baptist was in prison. And he sends word to Jesus, Are you the coming one or shall we look for another? And Jesus, sympathetic to John, to his circumstance, responded, Go and tell John the things which you hear and see. The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And what Jesus is saying is, Look at the works that I've done, the miracles. By the way, Jesus is also citing prophecy by Isaiah that he was fulfilling in doing those miraculous things. The empty tomb, his own resurrection from the dead was the climax of all his miracles. There has to be a reason that that tomb was empty. Excuses, theories have been proposed. But the tomb was still empty. His sinless life. Which of you convicts me of sin? Jesus asked. John 8, 46. And there have been many attempts to try to explain away or deny the character, the sinlessness of Jesus. But anyone who studies his life with an open mind and compares it to his or her own life will have to admit there is absolutely no one who has ever lived who's been like Jesus. Not to mention his influence. Some try not to do this now, but even time is based on the life of Jesus. B.C. and A.D., those aren't used very much anymore. But think about all the good works that have come about because of Jesus and his influence. Folks, faith involves, number one, a conviction based on evidence. Number two, faith involves trust. Faith involves trust. He that comes to God must believe that he is, number two, and that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. It's not only believing in him, it's believing him, taking him at his word, trusting that his word is true. Abraham is extolled in scripture as a model of this aspect of faith. Romans 4 says of Abraham, he did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief. This is that promise that even he, an old man, was going to become a father. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God, being fully convinced that what he had promised, he was able to perform. And therefore it was accounted to him for for righteousness. Abraham knew, I'm going to be a dad. Even though he and his wife are way past the age of childbearing. How did he know that? Because he knew God had promised it to him. And he trusted him. Faith in Christ involves believing his claims as to his identity. Trusting his word, his works, and trusting his payment for our sins. In fact, folk, in faith, we trust Christ for, for our salvation. I try to think of a way to illustrate this. And I thought about how a, a dad trying to get his child to jump off the diving board. And many of you have been there and done that or will be doing that. And, and you have dad in the pool saying, it's okay, I got you. Just jump. I'll catch you. I won't let anything bad happen to you. And finally, hopefully, that child 
musters up the courage to jump. And then they land in the water and, and dad is there to grab them. But then I thought, no, that's not, good en- that's not a good enough illustration because the point of that is to teach the child to, to jump on his own or her own. And dad is just there for the training process. That doesn't adequately describe faith in Christ. So I thought about another incident engaging water. It's when in the fourth watch of the night between 3 and 6 in the morning, Jesus comes out walking on water to his disciples who are in the boat and the winds are blowing, the waves are creeping into the boat. And when they first see Jesus, they don't recognize him at first and they think it's a ghost. And he says, do not be afraid, it is I. And Peter, don't you love him? Lord, if it's you, bid me come out to you. And so Jesus says, come. And Peter got out of the boat and began to walk on water. But then he noticed the wind, no doubt the waves. And he began to sink. And he cried out, Lord, save me. And Jesus rescued him. Why have you doubted, O you of little faith? I thought about Simon Peter on that occasion. He was able to walk on water. Something that requires the miraculous. Something that you can't do on your own. And as long as he kept his eyes focused on Jesus and took Jesus at his word and trusted him, he walked. But when he looked at the wind and the waves and began to doubt his own ability, then he began to sink. And he cried out to the only one who could save him. And to me, folks, that picture of Peter reaching out to Jesus as his only hope and putting his trust in him, that's faith. That's faith. And it's not a one-time thing. It's an ongoing, Jesus, I can't make it without you. And we need to have that kind of faith when it comes to our faith in Christ and being saved eternally, every day that we live, Jesus, I can't make it on my own. On my own, I'm like Peter and I sink. So it's only because of you that I can be saved and I'm going to trust you to save me. But then there's another component that must be included in a God-pleasing, biblical, saving faith. And that is that faith includes obedience. It includes submitting to the divine will and obedience to what God has commanded us to do. Let me give you a few examples. One of my favorite is found in Mark chapter 2. And this is the account where four friends want to bring their friend who's a paralytic to Jesus. And they go to the house where Jesus is, but Jesus has has gathered a crowd and the house is so full they can't get their friend in. So what do they do? They go up on top of the roof and tear through the roof and let him down to where Jesus, he can get to Jesus. And watch this statement, Mark 2 verse 5. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven you. That last statement is what created a lot of discussion how this man can forgive sins. We know he can do it because he's the son of God. But I want to call attention to the first part of this verse. 
when Jesus saw their faith. What did he see? He saw that these four friends wanted their friend to come to Jesus because they knew he could heal him. And he saw their faith demonstrating that they weren't going to allow this opportunity to pass, even if it meant tearing up a roof. He saw, they, he saw their faith. Jesus wants to see our faith. God wants to see our faith. In fact, James 2 verse 18 says, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. And folks, that's the only way faith can be seen. If it's active, if it's active. So included in, in faith and being a conviction grounded in evidence and trusting God, trusting Jesus, it also includes this component of being active and obedient. In Romans, the book of Romans that extols faith, it has two bookends, I like to call it, two bookends that mention this phrase, the obedience of faith. Here's the last bookend. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God, to what end? To bring about the obedience of faith. The gospel had been proclaimed, why? To bring about the obedience of faith. Not just conviction that Jesus is the Son of God and that He died for us. Not just trusting that that's true. But being obedient to the gospel. Being obedient to the will of Jesus. Abraham is extolled as a man of faith. James also uses him. And watch what he says. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works? And by works, faith was made perfect or faith was made complete. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness and he was called the friend of God. Genuine faith cannot be separated from submission to the Lord. A phrase that I learned long ago and have repeated, the faith that saves is the faith that obeys. It's included in Bible-saving, God-pleasing faith. Conviction based on evidence, trust, and obedience. J.H. Thayer, a lexicographer of the Greek language, defines faith with these words. A conviction full of joyful trust that Jesus is the Messiah the divinely appointed author of eternal salvation and the kingdom of God conjoined with obedience to Christ. You see the elements there? Conviction, trust, obedience. Another lexicographer, uh, Alan Richardson, who wrote a theological word book of the Bible, defines faith with these words. Faith is confident reliance on God. It is the act by which he lays hold by, on God's proffered resources, becomes obedient to what God prescribes, and abandoning all self-interest and self-reliance, trusts God completely. Obedience, conformity to what God prescribes, 
is the inevitable concomitant of believing. Concomitant, that which accompanies faith must always be accompanied, in fact, by obedience. In fact, obedience is inherent in Bible-saving, God-pleasing faith. Conviction based on evidence, trust, and obedience. So let me close with this question. How's your faith? How's your faith? If it's weak, we need to study. We need to, to look at nature. We need to study God's word. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. We need to build our faith. If we trust God, has that trust also been demonstrated by our obedience? Perhaps now you today, you recognize that Jesus is the Savior. He's the Son of God. He's the, he's the means of our salvation. And you believe that. And you even trust God's word that that is true. Well, have you obeyed the gospel? Have you put your faith into action by turning from sin and repentance, confessing him, being baptized into Christ so that your sins can be washed away? That's how we act on our faith. And God blesses that trusting, obedient faith. Have we gotten off course? Have we been distracted? Is our faith calling us to come back home to God? Or perhaps your faith is being tested by some circumstance in your life and you need the prayers of your church family to pray with you today. If that be the case, if you need to respond, please come right now as we stand and sing.